Galatians 5, 1-15 For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are consumed by one another. I suspect there might be a number of you who signed up this week for a free one-week trial to Disney Plus, because this weekend they released Hamilton, Hamilton, one of the most popular shows in New York, uh, and a show that this this being July Fourth weekend, a relevant weekend for them to to make it available. Uh, if you've seen the show, or if you're familiar with the soundtrack, uh, the King of England appears a few times to sing a song. And uh, at one moment after the revolution, after England has been defeated, the king comes out and he sings these lyrics. What comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own. Awesome. Wow. Do you have a clue what happens now? Oceans rise empires fall it's much harder when it's all your call all alone across the sea when your people say they hate you don't come crawling back to me <laughs> uh, the message there here's a nation that wants freedom you're free now let's see how you like it you think it's easy to be in charge uh, and it's interesting freedom is something that we have this natural desire for but how you get it, how you maintain it, and once you have it, whether or not you really want it because of all the implications and responsibilities that come with freedom, freedom is quite complex. And yet, the Christian message is a message about freedom, and it's a message that is fundamentally good. It touches on these deep desires and invites us into something that's liberating. So Paul, who writes the book, that we're looking at an excerpt from, the letter to the Galatian churches. He is urging them to enjoy and remain in the freedom that they have. That's verse one. It's for freedom. Christ has set you free. That's part of the announcement. But he's getting concerned uh, because it's not only impossible for us to free ourselves, but he comes and announces that God has set you free. And if you, if you need to learn more about that, study Christianity, read the Bible. But here he's speaking to people who believe that, were taught in it, 
but they're gravitating in, in a wrong direction. And, and that's something all of us are prone to. Uh, and there's a number of wrong directions we can go, but his warning here is that we should stand firm, that we should uh, continue as we began holding on to Christ. And so the, the, the form of freedom that he's talking about comes from the spirit. So you could, if you continue to read on from this passage, you'll see that. But the whole book of Galatians and the, uh, the rest of the New Testament shows that this freedom is really, it's unique in Christianity because it's a, it's a freedom that comes from grace. And grace is something uh, that is an essential component of the Christian message and the Christian story. How do we take hold of that grace? Well, Galatians will tell us it's by faith. Uh, and verses five to six encompass three words that we've been talking about for the whole year now. Uh, through the Spirit, by faith, so faith being one of those words, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. Hope, a second word. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So there's faith, hope, and love. Now, we've looked at a number of passages. Even last week, the passage had faith, hope, and love in it. I didn't highlight that all three were there. But this is the 41st and last sermon in a series on faith, hope, and love. And it's really three series put together, a series on faith, a series on hope, and now we're finishing the series on love. But these three work together. Because if you find yourself saying, I've been set free, but now I don't know what to do. What do I hold on to? Faith, hope, and love are each these big foundational building blocks, these uh, unique components of, of uh, what God reveals and gives to us that it allows us to be free, but to, to remain steadfast and to stand firm. And so today in talking about freedom, really I'm talking about love because that's the series that we're in and we're finishing up today talking about how faith works through love. How are we oriented to the world? Well, the faith we have in God and work out with one another uh, changes us so that we engage the world as free people. Um, but, but love sets us free and love is part of how we remain free and enjoy and exercise that freedom. And so that's what the passage, that's what the sermon's going to focus on is, is faith working through love. But I do want to talk about freedom um, with these three aspects of this Christian vision of freedom we have, which is opportunity, obligation, and calling. So we're going to look at each of those opportunity, obligation, and calling. And so first, opportunity. When most of us think of freedom, maybe that's what we think is about the possibilities. I, I, I get to do what I want. <laughs> and so the question is, if you have the opportunity to do what you want, what are the things you would do? And if we watch ourselves over time, our desires, our impulses, the things we take the opportunity to do, we recognize that, that actually there are things that we know we shouldn't do or things that we don't want to do and yet still do them. And it it does raise questions about what, what is the nature of our freedom. Uh, here's something that I can do that I feel is wrong, and yet I'll do it. Or what's even more complicated, here's something that I, I feel I shouldn't do, and yet I can't help but doing it. Uh, because there's the opportunity there. And so opportunity is how we think of freedom, but opportunity is not necessarily on its own freedom. So verse 13 has this warning. So, so Paul's writing to say, now you've been set free. Keep your freedom and don't give it up. He says, you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And so what can you do with your freedom? Well, lots of things. God is not going to force you to obey him. 
But if the opportunity you see is to act on these desires, and that's the flesh in Paul's writings, typically is not referring to our skin, but it's referring to our corrupt desires, our, our, our inordinate instincts. And it could be a desire for something wrong. It could be a desire for something good that we have with such fervor that more than anything else, we're willing to have the ends uh, justify the means. And so we do unethical means in order to fulfill these desires, even if the desire itself is good. Um, Paul is warning us, that's actually a way out of freedom. <laughs> so you've been set free, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Why? Because that would be enslaving. And so standard tests, how do you know if you're really free? Well, certain things that we desire, and there are classic, typical things that all people will struggle with, at least one or two or a few of these components, but food, sex, drugs and alcohol. There's a number of things like that, that we may have a desire for those things or something that those things offer us. And it feels freeing because they give us something we want. And the test is, well, what if you want to stop? What if you don't want to do these things? That's often when you find all this time, I thought it was me exercising my freedom. But now that I want to choose differently, if I can't, then I haven't really been free. This wasn't an opportunity for the flesh. This was an opportunity for me to be uh, taken over by my flesh, enslaved by it. So that's one thing to think about. If you're really free, are you able to stop doing what you're doing? Uh, and if not, then it says, well, this opportunity is not all that there is for flesh. But another thing to look at is what, what is the outcome of the freedoms that you exercise? What choices you make? What opportunities are there? Um, one of the, the, the challenges of being free individuals is respecting the freedom of others. So can you love someone and honor their freedom? Or if every opportunity needs to be for you, what impact will you have on others? And especially, what is it like to be in a community of people who think that way? And so for any of you who have friends, a peer group, uh, if everyone is assuming that their greatest drive in life is to take every opportunity they can for themselves, that doesn't make for good friendships. Because uh, sometimes freedom involves not exercising your own right to freedom. That's actually, that's a sign of real freedom, that you could choose not to do the thing you want. <laughs> we get deceived because we think choosing the thing that we want is freedom, but it's not always that clear. And so there's another warning here for those who are called to freedom but may use the freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That consuming instinct, I want, and where's the opportunity for me to have? In some cases, that's okay. But as a way of life, justified by a proclamation that I am free, nobody tells me what to do, uh, your opportunities, if they are taken because of this corrupt desire working within you that works within all of us, then what we're told is you will consume one another. We will destroy one another. We will use one another. And then nobody's free. And so opportunity is a part of freedom, but, but opportunity for what? We're going to keep going and I'll talk more about that. But I want to talk now about obligation. So maybe obligation sounds like the opposite of freedom. Freedom is being free from obligations. It's an opportunity to do whatever you like. Uh, but this is actually a little bit counterintuitive, and some people discover this when they transition from a form of freedom where somebody has thought, I'm just going to do whatever I feel. 
my whole life is whatever I want. And then you realize that there's no discipline, there's no structure, and you don't like the outcomes. You don't form deep friendships because nobody wants to be with you because you act selfishly. Um, you can't maybe uh, thrive in employment because you're not either not working hard or every advantage that's selfish alienates coworkers. And, and some people find that actually taking on obligations in the form of structure, for example, in the form of discipline, in the form of, of habits and, and, and putting controls in your life, it sounds like it works against freedom, but it actually makes you feel more free because the byproduct of just doing what you want is to never see sufficient evidence that you're doing anything valuable and to feel bad about yourself. <laughs> and then we, we have to spread that out without the discipline to see that the problem is me and not them. Feeling bad about ourselves spills over to others and we become bitter and resentful. Starting to get our lives together through discipline actually feels like a step out of that because then you start to have some boundaries and some principles and all of a sudden you feel a new kind of empowerment. You realize actually being able to do something specific and not do something just because I want to has more power and control than simply doing whatever you feel. And so it's actually a step of improvement obligation and yet that itself could be a trap. <laughs> And so Paul warns us in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. Now, I'm glad FT talked about circumcision, so I don't have to. In particular, I like how he cut that piece of paper, <laughs> uh, a good visual on, on uh, what circumcision is. But, but parents, ask your kids. They'll explain it to you. I'm uh, reversing uh, FT's uh, commendation here for the kids and just causing confusion in the families. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about circumcision now why it's important, but, but, but what he's warning them about is a certain kind of obligation. He's saying circumcision is a, is a sign of belonging in a community, but it's a community whose identity includes upholding the law. And if you want to take on that identity, keep in mind you're taking on obligation. And it's an obligation to keep the whole law. Now, Paul never speaks negatively about the law itself because the law was given by God but he talks about the law and its effect on sinful human beings because the law restrains our sin. But in that process of restraint, we'll learn just how problematic things are for us. And therefore, Paul says, ironically, the greatest law ever given, if you feel obligated to it, you'll, you'll feel like you're not as free. And, and yet you would think that what Paul is saying is so obvious and maybe 21st century individualists uh, in a country like America, not all of you are American, but, but while you're here, maybe you're learning about uh, our view of freedom and, and seeing how we're currently grappling with whether or not we've been consistent with it. Um, but here there's something to say, but there's actually, there's some appeal to not being radically individualistic, but, but having some group identity that circumcision would mark that you're coming into a community of people who have this identification. And there's these, this system that then uh, channels your life and you have meaning that's, that's just bigger than your life. Um, that actually can be appealing as well. But Paul warns, we have to be careful how we navigate that. You're neither free to do whatever you want, opportunity for the flesh, but also you have to be careful not to, to take out an identity where you're overwhelmed with obligations. I had a friend years ago, um, I'm highlighting years ago because I don't know if things have changed, but, but he, he did time in prison. And he would have gotten out in the mid-90s. And so I don't, I don't know uh, the dynamics if, if this still holds up. But at the time, he said a lot of his fellow inmates were becoming Muslims. And he had a theory 
on, on why this was, and this is where the conversation came up. His belief uh, is that, that the appeal of Islam for people who had uh, maybe found themselves in prison because they lived these unstructured lives where they sort of maybe got involved in taking and selling drugs or in certain crimes that would support that, or just not living a mainstream life where you, you just don't want to, to fit society. And so you do whatever you like. And yet it winds up being problematic and harmful. He's talking about people who got caught and punished for it. His theory was that in that context, all of a sudden, a religion like Islam that's very organized winds up feeling empowering for people who feel like they're, they have no power because they have a little say over their lives, a little organization, uh, he sort of felt like people that found that now the discipline of you, these are the rules you keep, this is what you eat and don't eat, this is when you pray, that they actually didn't feel less free, but they felt for the first time in control of their lives and more empowered. I thought that was an interesting theory. And I think there's a number of things there. One thing that strikes me as well is another component in terms of identity. The person who wears a prison uniform now is not only told... Uh, you know, uh, you need to watch out so we don't punish you again. But, but now there's, there's a, a formation of the, the concept of self that you go into the world as somebody who will be looked down on. But most expressions of Islam have some visual cue. And it, and it could have been, this was this, he was in prison in New York. It could have been Nation of Islam, so wearing a bow tie. But it could have been, when, as we think of more global, uh, traditional Islam with, with a certain hat or a certain, certain garb. I think there's something as well to now having a signal to the community. I, I've gotten my life together. Um, visually and by habits, I'm, I'm a new person. And you could certainly see the appeal for that. And religion does that. Um, but so can secularism. These days, I think we live in this very moralistic sense where, where we're being told, that, you know, these are the lines and you need to, you need to fit them squarely. And if, you're, if you are with us, you have... Uh, standing in a community where you're welcome and accepted, but it's this very strict needing to keep the lines. This is what human beings do with religion or apart from religion. Paul is warning us, don't do whatever your heart wants because your heart is corrupt, but be careful what you take on. Now, circumcision is something that, that many of us might intuitively think a selling point of Christianity is to say you don't need to be circumcised. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be appealing to say, you know what, you could be part of of God's family, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who gave the law to Moses, the God who created the heavens and the earth and to whom all human beings will have to give an account. You who knew nothing about that, that's not your upbringing, your background, you're not part of those people. The Christian message is an invitation. Now we might think, how do we persuade people to come to Christianity? Isn't it so much harder to persuade them to do so would require being circumcised? <laughs> And I certainly feel like it's much easier not to say, by the way, that's the first thing you need to do. But, but I think we assume that our message without circumcision is better. Why were the Galatians drawn in by this group that showed up and said, actually, if you now have come to the God of Abraham and the God of Moses, if you believe in Jesus, the Messiah, don't you know that faithfulness requires this visible sign to join his people so that you have standing in our community. And Paul doesn't simply say, look, you could get circumcised. You don't have to get circumcised, but he recognizes there's a trajectory where he says, if you accept circumcision, you're taking on an obligation because circumcision marks a community that, that 
circumcision comes by command and circumcision carries with it other commands. And Jesus has fulfilled that and has set us free. And so, so this would not be a step of deepening in the faith, but it would be a step backwards. And yet it would be appealing because for those of us who, who want more control, who want more standing, the idea of taking on commandments may seem unappealing. I don't like to be told what to do. I don't, I don't want to have to stop giving up certain things that I like. But there's actually something that gives meaning and purpose to, to having those disciplines. But Paul's warning is, but then there's a danger. If you're, if you're taking that on, not because Jesus requires it, you're actually giving up your freedom. You're not just taking on rules, but you're taking on a different paradigm. And, and therefore, the warning here is, we're not just talking about circumcision. But we're talking about your identity. We're talking about your way of life. We're talking about what you're taking on. And he's saying circumcision would be a sign of a community uh, that Jesus has come to fulfill and to, to set free. And so we're no longer under that law. And, you know, whether or not you've actually found yourself in some religion, whether it's some Christian form of religion or some other religion, where where you found that rules and discipline were, were either something you had to do or actually really helped you progress. So again, it's not that there's no, no structures, no rules, and no commandments, uh, but there are non-religious versions of it. And so, for example, um, one of the things that we're seeing right now is, as life is getting overwhelming because of technology, there's just so much more we can do. Most people feel like, I don't know how to do it all. And so, so, so uh, technology is scaled above most of our capacities to manage it. And in that, we feel like the person who just doesn't want to do anything or is not getting enough done. And so there's all these helps. How do, you, how do you become more productive? How do you organize? And so they're not necessarily moral rules, but we take on us some sort of rules or principles and systems, but they come with warnings. So for instance, one example, the to-do list. The to-do list is a very good tool. I've got all these things to do. It's, if I have one or two things, I'll just know to do them. But if I have 20 things, I know I'm going to forget some of them. So... So these principles, the structure, if I come up with a list and I name all the things that I can do, now I've moved out of just doing whatever I want to doing something that I'm more committed to, something that I want even more. Uh, I want to accomplish a whole set of tasks that involve these steps. But one of the things the productivity people warn about is one of the traps with, with the, uh, the to-do list. They wouldn't say that the to-do list itself is a problem. But there seems to be something at work in most of us. And there's, there's simultaneously the desire to, to have meaningful lives, to do things that are important, to accomplish, to achieve, to go somewhere. So, so you can't just do whatever you feel because then you wander for years doing nothing. And so, so to have some guiding principle, some structure, we want that. But there's something in us that wants to do what we feel and therefore typically doesn't want to do the things that we know we need to do. And one of the traps, as one example, is the to-do list is an, it creates the ability to structure your actions so you do the things that you commit to doing, whether or not you want to do them. What do I do next? Well, number four is this, and whether or not I do it, I'm going to do it. And then when you're done with number four, presumably you have some satisfaction. I'm glad I did it. What happens is we wind up managing the, the list itself. So we wind up saying, well, let me check some things off. And actually, now, now I've, I've done three or four things, and I crossed them out, and I need a new list. So let me get a new list that I have these things that I don't have, because then I'll have feel, felt better about that. And maybe if I could spend some time reordering it. And it's not that there's nothing to that. But the trap is 
you don't want to be doing the things on the list, but you'll feel terrible if you're sitting around doing nothing. So managing the list feels like you're doing something while you're actually not doing anything. And it's that, that place there that's just a picture of where most human beings exist. There are things we should do, and we want to do other things, and our conscience troubles us. And so the ideal is find a way to do the thing that you should do. And instead, we come up with ways of managing the guilt. I'm not good enough. I feel like a failure. So if I could, if I could find my time here doing something connected to the things I need to do, even if I'm not doing the things I need to do, I don't feel like I'm doing nothing. And so I can maintain it. But what do we maintain? <laughs> we maintain an anxious, miserable, dissatisfying existence. It's this middle road where maybe we're better off just enjoying ourselves and, and feeling regret about it, or we're better off just getting to the action. But a lot of us live in that place where, where the rules become its own thing. And, and, and that's the concern Paul has. He never says God's commandments are problematic themselves. He says, if you take them on, it, it's like a yoke that you attach yourself to. So, so there's an obligation. And part of that obligation is then uh, you find yourself not, still not doing the things you want to do, but managing the religious life. And that would have been true for the form of religion that Paul stepped out of. And ironically, even with a the theology of grace, it winds up being true within Christianity, we, we fall into the same trap. Here's all of the things God would have you do, great opportunities. And, and if you have the spirit in you, you want to do them, but you also want to do other things. And so we manage our religious structures and devotion and habits as practice. So while we're not doing what we should do, we don't feel totally miserable about ourselves and cut off and alienated, but we take on this identity. And Paul says, that's not freedom. Uh, that's exactly what Jesus is to set you free from, is this wasting your life with rules and regulations so that you can impress other people and clear your conscience, but still not do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> There's got to be a better way. So in verse 6, when, when, when he says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What counts is that you believe God and you're set free through faith. And this works itself out in love. So now you're not to, to sit around thinking about how you can love people, but you're supposed to go love people. And I think it's helpful that Paul puts it this way. Circumcision doesn't count for anything because there are people that felt like, well, I've understood the gospel and I believe it. But now something counts even more. And Paul says, no, circumcision won't count even more. You're not becoming greater in God's community. You're taking on an obligation that will keep you from thriving in God's community. So he says, circumcision doesn't count for anything. Don't get caught up in it. I think it's really helpful here, though, that he says, nor does uncircumcision count for anything. A bit of an odd word. It's hard enough to understand what circumcision is, not only what is uncircumcision. But I think it's helpful because the way human beings work is we could have this, hey, here I am, just my own person. I don't know anything about God. And now I hear this announcement. Come to the God who created the heavens and the earth. And now circumcision could be a sign that welcomes me into his people. That's a step that's even greater. And then the way things work is Paul comes and he gives us a theology to say, here's a careful understanding of how Christ filled the law so that you don't need to be circumcised. And our response is not simply, oh, I don't need to do it. But now we're on that insider club who really understands theologically 
why those who are circumcised are actually now below us because they're believing something false and we're the ones who are better. And so what Paul is saying is it's not that circumcision makes, makes you better, nor is it that you are not or have not been circumcised that makes you better. He's saying this whole focus on circumcision is the wrong focus. Circumcision and uncircumcision don't count for anything. Don't spend all your time as a community fighting over this and getting focused on this. But what counts is faith working through love. And so if you're managing a religious system in life, and if you're spending your time debating about what you do and don't believe, are you standing firm in the freedom of Christ? And Paul says it's for freedom. Christ has set you free. Now stand firm. And he wants to show us the better way. So what is the better way? And here's the last thing I'm going to talk about, which is calling. Because I think by Paul's own biography, his own experience, he realized that he was brought out of this very mindset that he's trying to protect us from stepping into because of Jesus Christ who called him. And now I'm using each, I'm trying to use language from this passage of opportunity and obligation. Verse eight, Paul says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. So there are people who came into this community to call them to what would have been a deeper way of life, take on circumcision and these practices. And Paul says, Jesus has called you, and these people are calling you to something different. So verse 13, he says, you were called to freedom. So don't be persuaded by people that are calling you away to something else that is not part of the teaching of Jesus. But Jesus called you to a way of freedom. And so Paul says now, live in that way. And Paul's biography itself is interesting. You know, you read through the Gospels, and Jesus has such kindness and compassion on the suffering, the marginalized, the sick, those who are not keeping up with the rules. And he has these very sharp, strong words for Pharisees. And the impression you get from the, from the Gospels, and it's especially some of us who hate hypocrisy get so excited to think this is wonderful, finally a religion where, where the elites and those who are in charge and religious people are cast out and then all of the rest of us in our, in our feeling like, you know, uh, we're losers are, are welcomed in. And the remarkable thing about Christianity is, yes, what's unique is that Jesus welcomes in the people that everybody else alienates. And they come in as members of the community. But what's remarkable is the harsh word for the hard-hearted, for the person who is working so hard that when God arrives, they don't recognize God, even as they're searching his own scriptures and keeping his law. The remarkable thing is grace is for them too. And we can't forget that. Paul wasn't just a guy. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul tells his story throughout the various parts of the New Testament, how he was quite good at being a Pharisee. He kept the law honorably, and he was rising the ranks, and he, he had the, the reputation. And you could go to the book of Acts, and in Acts 8, Stephen, the first deacon, is martyred uh, in, in Acts 7. In Acts 8, it begins by saying Paul, he, he was called Saul at the time, watched with approval. He thought this was good. He was excited that that Stephen stood up and said, hey, look, this is the story of our people and how Jesus has fulfilled it. And the crowd got angry and killed him. And Saul not only approved that, but it, he then went on capturing and trying to imprison Christians in order to persecute them. What is it about his life of radical discipline that left him unable to see the grace of God and hating people who had received it so that he became an enemy of God at the same time when he was trying to be a friend of God? What happened was Jesus appears to him in Acts 9 and calls him by name, Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the vision of the presence of Christ is so glorious that Paul is left blinded for three days. There seems to be something there that the one who thought he saw was so wrapped up in this system that overwhelmed him that he couldn't see God's kindness and grace. And so he himself was blinded for a period. So when he regained his sight, he saw the world in a whole different way. And he was saying, I was set free. And his urging now is to say, I want you to know this freedom. It's a freedom that's given to you by grace. You won't earn it. You're not obligated uh, to keep certain things, but it's actually given to you. And this is where love comes in. We're finishing a sermon series on love. Love sounds like something romantic. It sounds like something emotional. It sounds for something, you know, for a certain kind of people that sing certain kinds of songs. (laughs) Paul wasn't that kind of guy. Uh, Paul was a persecutor. Paul was a guy who became a Christian and stood in front of crowds and yelled while they threw rocks at him. When he talks about love, he found something that he never found in his own efforts to get his life together. And in Galatians 2, 20, in the midst of sharing some of his biography, you could go back and read the book and see how he alludes to parts of it. Galatians 2, 20, he says, the life I now live in the flesh. So, so remember here he's saying, don't take an opportunity for the flesh. We're not free of it. Galatians 2, 20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It was that realization that he can never do enough but Jesus had done something for him. Now, what is it that Jesus did? And and here's a guy that says, if you take on circumcision, I was circumcised. I had that identity. And I kept the whole law, or at least I tried to. But the more I tried to, the more the law demonstrated to me that I fell short of it. And... What comes to those who fall short of the law, well, is not to enjoy the blessing and freedom of the law, but to bear the curse of it. Paul sets out to persecute Christians. And then Jesus comes and says, I'm going to show you too, the hardened Pharisee, my grace. And so, yes, Paul, the skin of your flesh was cut off. And when you were young, you bled to have standing in this community. But do you know that my skin was cut as well, and I bled. But for me, it was the fulfillment. It was the end of the law. The the offspring that was promised through the sign of circumcision came. And now that he arrived, you don't have to cut off your flesh because the one who came in the flesh was cut off so he would bear the curse of the law. You've been born into a noble and excellent people with a law that you don't have the possibility to keep because of your hard heart and your lack of spiritual life. Paul's message in Galatians is the spirit is given as a gift and we receive the grace of God by faith. And we recognize that Jesus loved us so that he was cut off. So we don't have to cut anything off to join his people. We don't come in through pain and misery and suffering, but it's pain and misery and suffering that has excluded us. And Jesus joins himself to our flesh, bears the curse, the sin and the misery, sheds his blood, And Paul says, so that's freedom. He loved you. He gave himself for you. And it's freedom, not simply for those who need new commandments, but freedom for those who are are overwhelmed by falling short of whatever commandments, whether they're biblical or secular. 
And so his language in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. That language of severing is, there's actually a lot here about circumcision now we don't have the time to get into. Uh, but you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified from the law. You have fallen away from grace. That's his thing. The message was, Jesus joined himself with you. Now, stand firm. Stay with Jesus. If somebody's persuading you to come away to the old practices, you're falling away. You're being cut off. Rather, verse 5, he says, through the Spirit, by faith, the Spirit unites us to Christ. Faith connects us. And that's why he begins in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, if you want to enter into a community with the law, he says, you'll be obligated to take the whole law upon you. That's, that's a, a yoke. That, that was part of the rabbinic teaching. You know, if you have two oxen that need to plow a field, you put them together, and they're stronger together. And the law was like a yoke. You put it on you, and the two of you now do the work of God. And he says, if you, if you, if you get circumcised, you're obligated to keep the whole law. You'll, you'll take on a yoke that won't free you. He says, haven't you heard the message of Jesus who invites you, who calls you, who says, come to me, all who are weary, who are burdened, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what Paul is saying, is there's a yoke that we take on that is so heavy we can't move forward. But there's the yoke of our sin, and Jesus, take, he comes and he yokes himself to us in his flesh. It's not about cutting our flesh. It's his taking on his flesh, taking on our flesh. He says, if you are yoked with me, if you come to me, I bear the curse of the law, so you don't have to fulfill the requirements of it. And now we do life together. Paul's message is, stand firm. Don't fall away. Don't let somebody persuade you to something that seems more spiritual, but look at the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And I think this is helpful right now. We live in a stressful period of time, and I'm not talking about the immediate time. I'm not talking about COVID and all of the things that are coming up in society. I'm talking about recent years where I think we're a more anxious people. And, and there's probably a number of reasons for it. And every generation has their own challenges. One thing I think that, that challenges us is the opportunity. So many of the improvements that have come through technology are because now we have more feedback. We have more data. We're, we're more connected to the truth and to reality. And so we can get more done. We have a better list. But what happens is we're connected to the truth with everything in life. And the luxury people have had in previous generations to be wrong about things, we're, we no longer have the luxury to be wrong about. And we constantly know now where we're falling short. So if you're feeling like you need to be in shape and you feel like, you know, today I, I did walk to the store and I did a number of things and I don't know that I want to go to the gym. It feels like I've done enough. I think I've done enough. I've, I've, I've walked as enough exercise, but then you realize your phone has been keeping track the whole time. And so you pull your phone out and you find that all that walking you thought you did was really 3000 steps. And we all know the new commandment, 10,000. And yeah, the studies say, we have no idea why anybody said 10,000. So you've got freedom. It doesn't need to be 10,000. It could be 7,000. And people are saying it doesn't need to be 10,000. It probably should be 15,000. But hey, there's no rules here. You do whatever you like. So you are free. You could walk as much or as little as you like. You don't have to walk 10,000 steps. But now that you know that you walked only 3,000, you know you don't have to do 10,000. But now you know you've done less than you should have. 
And there's something about the whole of our lives now that somehow is communicating to us everywhere that you thought you were okay, uh, now you know what the standard is. And it's not a moral standard. You're not a bad person. Don't feel bad. This is just the data we're generating. There's an app for everything. How much did you sleep? You know, maybe, hey, Siri is, is uh, counting how many times you cursed. It's not a problem. You're not a bad person. But there's the list of what you're actually doing. And the engagement with who we are is more than most of us can bear. Because the truth is we are always less than we want to be. And Paul says, this is part of the lie of this world, that there's going to be rules, religious or secular, that always come and say, whatever the standard is, invent your own standard. As soon as there's a standard, if you don't meet it, you're a bad person. And Paul says, with your corrupt heart, you will always feel like a slave. He comes in and says, the gospel is announced to every person in all of creation. Jesus Christ has loved you and given himself for you. And it's no longer about your keeping a standard, but it's about his bearing the curse of the righteous standard of the law. So there is no standard that could live up to the standard of the law of Moses. And the teaching of Jesus is, and you don't need to keep the law of Moses because it's been fulfilled. And it's not that you're now free from the law. It's being awakened by the spirit. You're free from your corrupt nature and our condemning world and the narrative in your mind that tells you that you're never good enough. Paul seemed like the best kind of person I could imagine from a religious perspective. And Paul says, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And that's where he found freedom. And that changes things. So verse seven, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? I wanna go back to now obligation and opportunity. You, are, you don't wanna be obligated to keep the law. But we're not free from obligations. Verse 7, you are running well. Obedience to the truth. But the truth is from Christ. who says, I, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So it's a standard that frees you. And he says, you were running well. You were progressing. You were moving. Who is it that's calling you away? Who's hindering you from obeying the truth? The new obligation is not to rules and commands. It's the truth. And our problem is we want to mold the truth and adopt it to us because we don't want to conform. And then we find ourselves you know, in a false view of freedom because by altering the truth, we've altered reality. And what he says is now you obey the truth. It's not a list of rules and commands. You, you just know you give aside your denial, your justification of yourself, your blame shifting of others, and you live by grace and then you will run well. So you do have an obligation it's to the truth, but the truth sets you free. It's not the commandments that will condemn you. But there's also an opportunity. It's not an opportunity to the flesh. Paul says, uh, verse 11, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the opportunity. Now if the Spirit is given to you, you don't need to keep all the laws, but you can, you can live out of the fullness of the law. You can love your neighbor. When you know that God has loved you and has not condemned you, but has shown you grace, now you know that you can love others. And that's where faith, hope, and love is so essential. This hope that Paul is eagerly awaiting for righteousness. The faith that he has that says, I've heard this message of grace, and nobody has loved me like Jesus has, as is claimed in the gospel message. And so I'm going to receive that by faith and, and give up my striving. 
but what matters now is not me and what I did or how I get it together, but what matters is that faith working through love. Love came into me, so I believed. Now I believe, and I fulfill the law. <laughs> the thing that God wanted for me to be free, not to do whatever I feel, but to be free to feel like doing the things that give glory to God and honor others. That's a whole different way of life. And Paul says, I want to warn you, don't get persuaded to get pulled away from Christ. But he joined himself with you. Join yourself with him. Stand firm in the freedom. And so there's this odd thing in a consumer culture where we think my freedom is about getting to do whatever I want because my life is my own. Isn't that, that was the Billy Joel song. I don't care anymore what you say because this is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. Sounds like the cry to freedom, but that word alone is the last phrase. Leave me alone. I'm going to do what I want. The Christian way is not that freedom is your being exactly who you want to be, the identity you create yourself to be. The Heidelberg Catechism, you could look this up. What is your only comfort in life and, my, and death? That I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, my Savior, and then go and read the implications of it. Freedom is that God has called us. It's not that we have created a life for ourselves, but God speaks into our lives and says, come and join with me. I will pour my spirit into you. I have given myself for you. I have loved you. Take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your soul. And now, having received the love of God, stand firm in it, believe it, and believing it, go do that for others. Fulfill the law by loving your neighbor as yourself, by sacrificing for others, by bearing the burdens as you walk through with Christ. That's the way of freedom. As we commemorate freedom this weekend in the United States, remember that the freedom of Christ is the true freedom and stand for a minute. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we easily get pulled away by the desires in our hearts or by the messages of those around us who seem to offer something better, more compelling than what you do. Lord, you offered yourself. You didn't offer us rules and regulations. You didn't offer us a religious system. You offered your son who bore the curse of our sin in order that we would be forgiven and freed from our sins. And Lord, help us to trust you and to know your love and to be free of the condemnation of the world, the free of the condemnation of ourself, and to trust you when you say that now there's no condemnation if we have joined with Christ. And so, Lord, help us to live that freedom this week, uh, but help us to stand firm in the whole of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.